Oh, um, I have a poster in my bedroom, and I have it up next, close to the ceiling so I can see it when I'm lying on my bed. And it says, Encountering God's Glory. And I think it's been there about eight years, ten years. It's been there a long time, and it's got kind of these wispy, colored smoke things going through it. And that's just a, that's been a desire of mine for a long time, is just to encounter more of God's glory. How many of you have had that, that yearning, that desire inside of you? I, I, yeah, I think that we, were, we have a DNA for that, don't you? Yeah, that's part of our, that's part of our DNA, is we were, we were created to, to encounter God's glory and, and to understand our, the glory that he's given to us. So, sounding better now? I just shifted a little bit. So, that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about glory. Yeah. And glory is so, is through the whole Bible. And so after a while, you might just almost not even notice that it's there. You know, it's almost like, like what you're, if you're a fish, it's what you're swimming through. Um, so I want, to, I want to help us all focus on this so that we can be more tuned into glory when, when, God, when it shows up. <laughs> okay, that's my desire. And so I ask, Heavenly Father, for each one of us, that you would take um, this message and translate it into uh, people's heart languages, their spirit languages, that, that you would amplify what you want to amplify and that you would, you would put in place seeds that you want to cause to grow in people's spirits about glory. Because you, are, you created us for glory. And you are the king of glory. It's glory. It's mentioned throughout the Bible. When you read or hear that word, what comes to your mind? And even in the, in the world, glory is talked about, right? How is the word glory used in newspapers, magazines, movies, etc.? Pardon? Fame. It's about fame. So what are some areas where you really, people, they, they bring up glory a lot? Sports. Sports, totally. And, and what's another area? War. Yes, war. That's right. Human glory. One, one way we, we hear about that is about extraordinary bravery and sacrifice in battle. For example, the movie Glory about civil, black Civil War soldiers. Anybody see that one? And, of course, what's been in our faces a lot these days, NFL glory. <laughs> Uh, there was an article, Hopeful's Battle for NFL Glory on N- NPR recently. So, so, uh, so there's, there's a poster for the, for the movie Glory and then about the power and the glory. It, does it seem like they're overreaching a little bit? Uh, n- not, not to diss any of you really you know, diehard football fans. Um, 
but it sometimes feels like they're trying to raise it up. I, there was a there was a uh, um, a picture in the paper a while ago, a 49er fan, and he was he was dressed as this character looking for gold, and it had as the headline something about forever glory on top on top of the picture. And uh, but the, but it, I think it is tapping into this desire that pe- all people have for glory, even if they're looking for it in in places that aren't really going to last forever. So what, what does glory mean in the Bible? What does the word mean? The Hebrew word for glory is kabod or kabod. At its root, kabod or kabod means weight or heaviness. The same word is then used to express importance, honor, and majesty. And when, uh, when the 70 Hebrew scholars translated the Jewish scriptures into Greek, they chose the Greek word doxa, which means common belief or popular opinion, for their translation of the Hebrew kavod. And the followers of Jesus who wrote the New Testament in Greek also used doxa, just like the Septuagint. That, that translation was called the Septuagint for the 70, by the way. So I think you have to go back to the original Hebrew word to really get it. The, the Greek really doesn't help you so, so much, except to know that that's the word they, they use to translate kabod or kabod. So I'm going I'm to give you, read to you about an experience of what I would call the glory in 1922. Here's an account of God's weighty presence when Smith Wigglesworth visited New Zealand. There were 11 leading Christians in prayer with our brother Wigglesworth at a special afternoon meeting. Each had taken a part. The evangelist then began to pray for the dominion, and as he continued, each, according to their measure of spirituality, got out. The power of God filled the room, and they could not remain in an atmosphere supercharged by the power of God. The author, in other words, the one who's writing this account, on hearing of this from one who was present, registered a vow that if the opportunity came, he at any rate would remain whoever else went out. Can you imagine doing that yourself? During the stay in the Sounds, a special meeting was called to pray for the other towns in New Zealand yet to be visited. A like position to the other meeting now arose. Here was the opportunity, the challenge, and the contest was on. A number prayed. Then the old saint, Wigglesworth, began to lift up his voice, and strange as it may seem, the exodus began. A divine influence began to fill the place. The room became holy. The power of God began to feel like a heavy weight. With set chin, sorry about that, with set chin and a definite decision not to budge, the only other one now left in the room hung on and hung on until the pressure became too great and he could stay no longer. With a floodgate of his soul pouring out a stream of tears and with uncontrollable sobbing, he had to get out or die. And a man who knew God, as few do, was left alone immersed in an atmosphere that few men could breathe in. 
So I'd call that glory. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. Have you ever uh, heard or, uh, of or read the book The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis? It sounds like a terrible title, you know. Who'd, who'd want to read about a divorce? <laughs> but it's really about the divorce between hell and heaven. And uh, I highly recommend it. In this book, it's a fiction book, okay, so... If it doesn't quite fit all of your theology, you know, give it some grace. He's trying to get some points across. <clears throat> In this book, C.S. Lewis uh, imagines being, being in this kind of this dark town. It seems like it's just about to go completely dark, or maybe it's turning into dawn. There's differences of opinions. But it's, it's really dingy, and no one seems real happy. And everything looks just kind of run down and unpleasant. And, but he's in a queue with meaning a line, that's a British word, a queue with other folks uh, to take a bus trip, an excursion. And a lot of people quarrel and never get on the bus, but he manages to get on the bus. And uh, the bus trip begins and they rise up into the air. This is an unusual bus. <laughs> they go higher and higher and higher and it, until they're in, in this green country um, and, they, and they land. I'm just going to read a couple of excerpts to give you a feeling. But this is, this is another picture of, um, different from the Smith-Wigglesworth one, of, of levels of glory. Okay? So he noticed what he called the solid people because when he and the other bus travelers got off, they looked more like ghosts. They were kind of semi-transparent, and in fact, even the grass hurt to walk on because the grass was a lot more real than they were. <clears throat> so these bright, solid people are heading their direction. <clears throat> As the solid people came nearer, I still noticed that they were moving with order and determination as though each had his marked man in our shadowy company. These are going to be affecting scenes, I said to myself. In other words, they're coming to visit, the, the bright people are coming to visit this this group of folks that took the bus ride. <clears throat> I said, this is going to be, there's going to be some affecting scenes, I said to myself. Perhaps it would not be right to look on. And with that, I sidled away on some vague pretext of doing a little exploring. A grove of huge cedars to my right seemed attractive, and I entered it. Walking proved difficult. The grass, hard as diamonds to my unsubstantial feet, made me feel as if I were walking on wrinkled rock. And I suffered pains like those of the mermaid in Hans Anderson. A bird ran across in front of me, and I envied it. It belonged to that country and was as real as the grass. It could bend the stalks and spatter itself with the dew. Almost at once, I was followed by what I have called the big man. To speak more accurately, the big ghost. His, he, in turn, was followed by one of the bright people. Don't you know me? He shouted to the ghost, and I found it impossible not to turn and intend. The face of the solid spirit, he was one of those who wore a robe, made me want to dance. It was so jocund and so established in its youthfulness. Well, I'll be damned, said the ghost. 
I wouldn't have believed it. It's a fair knockout. It isn't right, Len, you know. What about poor Jack, eh? You look pretty pleased with yourself, but what I say is, what about poor Jack? He is here, said the other. You'll meet him soon if you stay. But you murdered him. Of course I did. It's all right now. All right, is it? All right for you, you mean, but what about the poor chap himself, lying dead and cold? He, but he isn't. I've told you, you will meet him soon. He sent his love to you. Well, what I'd like to understand, said the ghost, is what you're here for, so please his punch. You, a bloody murderer. Well, I've been walking the streets down there and living in a place like a pigsty all these years. That is a little hard to understand at first, but it's all over now. You will be pleased about it presently. Till then, there is no need to bother about it. No need to bother about it? Aren't you ashamed of yourself? No, not as you mean. I do not look at myself. I have given up myself. I had to, you know, after the murder. That is what it did for me. And that is how everything began. Personally, said the big ghost, with an emphasis that contradicted the ordinary meaning of the word, Personally, I'd have thought you and I ought to be the other way around. That's my opinion. Very likely we soon shall be, said the other, if you'll stop thinking about it. Look at me now, said the ghost, slapping its chest, but the slap made no noise. I've gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious man. I don't say I had no faults, but far from it. But I'd done my best all my life, see? I'd done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted to drink, I paid for it. If I took my wages, I'd done my job, see? Now that's the sort I was, and I don't care who knows it. It would be better not to go on about that right now. <clears throat> Who's going on? I'm not arguing. I'm just telling you the sort of chap I, am, I was, see? I'm asking for nothing but my rights. You may think you can put me down because you're dressed up like that, which you weren't when you worked under me. And I'm only a poor man, but I got my rights, same as you, see? Oh, no, it's not so bad as that. I haven't got my rights, or I should not be here. And you will not get yours either. You'll get something far better. Never fear. That's just what I say. I haven't got my rights. I always done my best. I never done nothing wrong. And, when, and I, what I don't see is why I shouldn't, why, sh why I should be put below a bloody murderer like you. Who knows whether you will be? Only be happy and come with me. What do you keep arguing for? I'm only telling you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. Then do. At once, ask for the bleeding charity. <laughs> Everything here is for the asking, and nothing can be bought. That may be, that may be very well for you, I dare say, if they chose to let in a bloody murderer, all because he makes a poor mouth at the last moment. Well, that's their lookout. But I don't see myself going in the same boat with you, see? Why should I? I don't want charity. I'm a decent man, and if I had my rights, I'd been here long ago, and you can tell them I said so. The other shook his head. You can never do it like that. 
He said, your feet will never grow hard enough to walk on our grass that way. You'll be tired out before you get to the mountains. And it isn't exactly true, you know. Mirth danced in his eyes as he said it. What isn't true? Asked the ghost sulkily. You weren't a decent man. And you didn't do your best. We none of us were, and we none of us did. Lord bless you. <laughs> Excuse me. It doesn't matter. There's no need to go into that all right now. You, gasped the ghost, you have the face to tell me I wasn't a decent chap? Of course. Must I go into all that? I will tell you one thing to begin with. Murdering old Jack wasn't the worst thing I did. That was the work of a moment, and I was half mad when I did it. But I murdered you in my heart. Deliberately for years, I used to lie awake at nights thinking what I'd do to you if I ever got the chance. And that is why I have been sent to see you now. To ask your forgiveness and to be your servant for as long as you need one. And longer if it pleases you. I was the worst, but all the men who worked under you felt the same. You made it hard for us, you know, and you made it hard for your wife, too, and for your children. Mind your own business, young man, said the ghost. None of your lips, see? Because I'm not taking any impudence from you about my private affairs. There are no private affairs, said the other. <laughs> and I'll tell you another thing, said the ghost. You can clear off, see? You're not wanted. I may only be a poor man but I'm not making pals with a murderer, let alone taking lessons from him. Make it hard for you and your like, did I? If I had you back there, I'd show you what work is. Come and show me now, said the other with laughter in his voice. It will be joy going up the mountains, but there will be plenty of work. You don't suppose I'd go with you? Don't refuse. You'll never get there alone, and I am the one who is sent to you. So that's the trick, is it? shouted the ghost. Outwardly bitter, yet I thought there was a kind of triumph in its voice. It had been entreated, it could make a refusal. And this seemed to be a, to it a kind of advantage. I thought there'd be some damn nonsense. It's all a click, all a bloody click. Tell them I'm not coming, see? I'd rather be damned than go along with you. I came here to get my rights, see? Not to go snibbling along on charity tied onto your apron strings. If they're too fine to have me without you, I'll go home. It was almost happy now that it could, in a sense, threaten. That's what I'll do, it repeated. I'll go home. I didn't come here to be treated like a dog. I'll go home. That's what I'll do. Damn and blast the whole pack of you. And in the end, still grumbling, but whimpering a little as it picked its way over the sharp grasses, it made off. So do you, do you get the sense of, of heaven just welcoming and wanting to encourage becoming more real if we start walking up if, he, if the ghost was willing to start heading up the mountains closer to, to the Lord he would become more solid but he had some things he was holding on to didn't he? his rights yeah I think I've had that problem before I don't know about you there's more to it there's a lot more to it so highly recommend it oops don't know what happened there so here we see glory essentially as being what's more real. The more the solid people have more glory. The grass and the birds have more solidity, more realness than than the folks that took the excursion from from what's becoming hell. Which relates also, you can see, to the concept of 
of, of weight or heaviness, of being solid, of being real. And I believe that's also part of what God wants to help us understand. He's calling us to become more real, more solid, to go further and higher and deeper into heaven with him. We get other pictures of God's glory. This is from Exodus 24. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. Maybe something like that. So God's glory can be spectacular, can't it? <laughs> It can be awesome and scary and powerful and overwhelming. And we get, we get then to get to fall down on our faces and say, you are God. <laughs> Glory is important to God. One way I could figure that out was it's used 369 times in the New King James Version, at least. That's a lot. And he is the King of Glory. It's from Psalm 24. And with, while we look at this, I'm also going to let the, uh, the version from Handel's Messiah play as well. If the sound comes on, that is. We could back it up if need be. Can we back it up? Or? Okay. You ready? Thank you. Lift up your gates. The King of Glory.
Lord, some applause. <laughs> Give him some glory yourself. Yes. Mm. So the the picture from the psalm, at least this section, is is uh, is a king in all his splendor with his army coming to the gate of a city, and and there's a call to to raise the raise the gate and let the king of glory come in. It's his by right. And what happens for a city that lets in the king of glory? More glory. Yes, much more. Do you think this might also be talking about our own hearts? Yeah. Yeah. He wants to come in and as a friend. He also wants to come in as the king of glory. He's not limited. There's some glory in the sky there. It's a picture from a recent aurora borealis from the solar flare that happened a few days ago. This is taken out near uh, Fairbanks, Alaska. Did you know that the whole earth is full of God's glory? Here's the scripture that tells this to us from Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord seated, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. It is the Lord of hosts, is Yahweh Sabaoth. The whole earth is full of his glory. Maybe it looks something like that. Mm. Mm. Yes. 
Don't you have the feeling we might be missing some of, some of that glory? Yeah. Yeah. And how does Isaiah respond to this glory-filled experience? Does he jump up and down and say, Hooray? It can be pretty intense when we come, come and we have an encounter with God's glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Yeah. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. Yeah. So sometimes when we encounter that level of glory, we're aware that we're out of sync <coughs> with, with what we're being shown, aren't we? Yeah. God doesn't just want us to encounter his glory. He wants an experiential, relational, yada knowledge of his glory for each one of us. This is from Habakkuk. But we're going to start a little earlier. Sometimes, sometimes it's really good to read the context of the scripture instead of just the scripture. So this is starting in verse 12. God says, Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, it is not of the Lord of hosts that the people labor to feed the fire and nations weary themselves in vain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge, with the yada, of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He wants it to be widespread and deep, doesn't he? If you keep on reading in Habakkuk right after that, God continues and says, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. So what we... What we have here is um, looking at glory and shame, aren't we? God is saying, you know, you're, you're trying to build your own glory, but you're doing it in ways that aren't, aren't, um, aren't really bringing glory. Building, building a city with bloodshed and iniquity. Uh, having, getting drunk and having orgies. Uh, these things do you think are bringing you glory, but, but they're not. They're bringing you shame. It's interesting. God will talk about or even reveal his glory in the midst of his covenant people be behaving shamefully. Besides Habakkuk, we also have Numbers 14. I'm going to read that to you. Do you ever notice sometimes when you read the Bible and <coughs> excuse it seems like God's really bringing up some... some um, some issues that he's really frustrated about, and then in the midst of it, he says something like, "But the, you know, the uh, 
the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, you know, right in the midst of all that stuff. Or he, he, you know, so it's like, wait, you just did this, and then you say that, and then you go back to expressing um, what's going wrong. And for a while, I thought maybe, you know, someone just changed the God channel one, one click or something. <laughs> like the, the <laughs> do you ever, do you ever feel that way? <laughs> reading, especially reading the Old Testament. But what I've come to realize is that even when God is bringing up stuff that is not His heart for us, bringing up what's what's not working, letting people know the ways you're trying to find glory is instead bringing you shame, for example. He's still wanting to assert that he has answers and his glory is going to be known by all people. So in, uh, in Numbers 14, um, the Lord seems kind of ticked. <laughs> then the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I performed among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. Doesn't sound like he's real happy with the people of Israel. Do you think that was his real heart? No, but he had found a man in Moses who would, who would stand up for the people and call God into, uh, believe that God really had higher purposes than that and ask God to stand in them. And so, we at, so Moses asked God to pardon the people. And part he says, you know, you're going to look really bad if after you took these folks out of Egypt, if you just destroy them all now, they're going to say you couldn't bring them into the promised land. So for your own glory's sake, get, please pardon us. <clears throat> pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. So Moses is appealing to God's graciousness and mercy. And then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. So he gets that in. He says, I'm not happy with about all this, but the whole earth is going to be filled with my glory. That's what's going to happen. Because all of these men have, who have seen my glory, people who have seen his glory, he holds to a higher standard, doesn't he? All these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. But my servant Caleb, yea, Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring... Also, God comes in astounding glory in Ezekiel. Have any of you read that book? Ezekiel? It is a strange book, isn't it? All sorts of strange things happening. Better than any science fiction I've read. God came in astounding glory in Ezekiel. He came in his glory to remove his indwelling glory from the temple. So even removing the glory was a 
with the revelation of his glory. You can see that in Ezekiel chapter 1 and also 10 and 11. Even then, even in Ezekiel, in chapter 11 and 36, and in chapter 36, God promises that he will put a new spirit and a soft heart in his people. So even in the midst of glory being removed, he said, I have a plan. I'm not going to leave you like this. Isn't that, isn't that encouraging? And I paraphrase what I would say God was trying to say to Judah through the prophet Habakkuk in this way. The ways you are trying to bring glory to yourself is bringing shame instead. But I, Yahweh, will show the whole earth, the whole earth, true glory, which comes from relationally knowing me. sure what I, how I'm causing that, but Yahweh will reveal his glory to all flesh. In Isaiah 40, verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Oh, that's, that's also another actual um, verse that was put to, put to music in Handel's Messiah. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord, the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. So that's his plan. I just wanted to break this up with some cool, cool glorious pictures too. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. This is a, this is a Hubble uh, space telescope photo. It kind of looks like a, almost like a person in the head with a, some kind of a crown, doesn't it? Depends how you look at it. I'll find out afterwards what you thought you were seeing. <laughs> kind of like looking at clouds, you know. The glory of Yahweh already fills all of his creation. What is missing has been our ability to perceive and relationally experience his glory. But Yahweh's plan is that humanity will see him and his glory in his son Jesus. This is what John the Beloved said. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. Jesus. I'm going to read that again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Yeah. 
Yes, it is. The, hi- the highest revelation that's been given to us. But since that time, the eyes of many have been blinded by the enemy from seeing this glory in the person of Jesus. And this is where you and I come in. We are called and empowered to shine that experiential relational knowledge of Jesus wherever we go. So we have a part in people experiencing God's glory. This is from 2 Corinthians. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. But we want everyone to see him, don't we? We don't want the enemy to be able to continue blinding them. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. Think of that in the entire universe, commanded light to shine out. Who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, the experiential knowledge, the yada knowledge, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus the Messiah. Yeah. He sh- so he's shining in our hearts and through hearts t- to give that light to other people. Wow. Remember we talked about that, ve- that veil? It's about beholding Jesus. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory, there's that word glory again, the glory of the Lord, are being transferred, formed, excuse me, like to be transferred to, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So how are we transformed? That's what happens, but how does it happen? By looking at Jesus. There's one artist's idea of what Jesus looks like. So we get transformed and we get prepared to shine his light, the light of his glory to others by looking at Jesus, by beholding him with unveiled faces and being transformed by the spirit of the Lord. And when we look into his eyes, what does he sometimes show us back? How he sees us. If you can see it, if you can, if you can see it close enough, there's a little girl in the, the pupil which is, which is what Susan shared about, we are the apple of his eye, we are the pupil of his eye. We didn't, Susan didn't know what I was going to be uh, sharing specifically. That was, that was God doing that. 
So a little later on, I'm going to invite all of you to spend some time looking into God's eyes, looking into Jesus' eyes. Okay, does that sound good? <laughs> and if you already are, you keep on going. <laughs> An encounter with God trumps a sermon any day. <laughs> Arise, shine. This is even, from, Isaiah was prophesying this, it was really going to come to pass when Jesus came, right? Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, meaning the nations and kings to the brightness of your rising. So how is that happening? It's because we're looking into Jesus' eyes. We're beholding him and his love is transforming us by the Spirit. And we, we begin to shine brighter and brighter his light. I, I, from what I'm kind of hearing, some of your spirits are really getting this. That's really, that's really cool. I need to get it deeper myself. This is God's plan. For it was fitting for him, this is from Hebrews 2, for it was fitting for him, for, for whom all things, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things. So, for whom all, are all things, and by whom all things are. That one, in bringing many sons, and of course daughters, to glory. And it was fitting, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain, captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So his plan was to, to bring many sons to glory, many daughters to glory. That's been his plan all along. But what about the suffering thing? I wasn't sure I liked that. This is what... I believe so far, and God, God, you're welcome to continue updating, transforming me in my understanding. I believe the kind of suffering that that the writer of Hebrews is talking about, and uh, Paul in the Book of Romans and other places, that kind of suffering is suffering for the sake of love. It's not all suffering, but suffering for the sake of love, love of God, love of others. And, for this, and suffering for the sake of being wholehearted people. And that kind of suffering, I believe, is of immense value in God's eyes. Choosing to accept and even embrace our vulnerabilities is a key to true love and intimacy. So when I, was, when I was sick last summer, I honestly believe that Susan suffered more than I did. I was unconscious most of the time. But for Susan, she was in a very vulnerable place. She didn't know from day to day whether I was going to die, and I kept on getting sicker. 
And when we're faced with that kind of vulnerability, it's a really tempting thing to just turn off our feelings, shut down our heart, drink some beers, eat a banana nut, bread, cake, you know, do something to numb out, right? Am I making sense? Being vulnerable is not comfortable. And I'm so honoring to Susan because she chose to hang in there and be real with herself, with God, even, even when she wasn't really responding always in the way that, you know, she imagined some, 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 you know, extremely spiritual person would. She was struggling, but she let herself be seen by those who were around her, and I really honor that. And I think that's, that's the key to true intimacy, isn't it, with God and with others. And if you, if you have a chance, read what Susan wrote uh, in the weekly email. Some of you already had a chance. We got it out kind of late, though. Jesus walked this vulnerability, this suffering, through as a human on the earth so that we could inherit this grace from him. So it's not that we have to, we have to will ourselves to, um, to, to be able to suffer for love and to be vulnerable. We get to inherit what he already accomplished. That's part of what looking into his eyes, beholding him, does for us. Is he gives us grace. Including grace to be vulnerable. Including, including grace to suffer for love. They're all tied together. Glory, suffering. But just the right, the right kind of suffering. Suffering for the sake of love. This is from Romans 8. Verse 15 to 17. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. They put suffering and glory in the same, the same sentence again. <laughs> and I just want to remind you, back in the time that Paul was writing, there was a lot to be scared of. The Romans basically ruled by making everybody afraid of them. That was the primary thing that kept order, right? The, the roads were sometimes lined with people who had been crucified. Um, uh, it w- there was a peace, but it was it was a peace that was enforced by fear. And uh, the Jews and the Christians were persecuted. Um, so this wasn't just kind of you know fear of the night or fear. It was it was this tangible fear of you know the authorities could do bad things to you anytime they wanted to. Especially if you followed another god besides the Roman gods, huh? especially if you weren't worshiping the emperor. So not, ha- not having that spirit of bondage again to fear, but living as adopted, loved children was really import- is really important. What's very important then is still very important. So we're going to just talk a little more. <clears throat> this is, again, from Paul just a little bit later. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory 
which shall be revealed in us. Where is that glory going to be revealed? In us. And again, I make the... uh, I give you my impression that our willingness to suffer for love, to live in vulnerability, is establishing a place for glory in us. And this is only possible as we continue to behold Jesus and his eyes of love and acceptance for us. Okay, so we're going to get off... um, Suffering and vulnerability for a while. Well, at least suffering. (laughs) You're going, it's good. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is John 17. I'm just going to read a section of it. This is some people refer to this as Jesus' high priestly prayer. So he's praying to the Father. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory, there's glory again, and the glory which you gave me, I have given to them. That they may be one, just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one. Meaning completely in one. And that the world may know that you have sent me, and I have loved them as you have loved me. So, what's the outcome of Jesus giving his followers his glory? That they may be one, just as he and the Father are one. So one of the purposes of glory makes it possible to have a deep connection with the creator of the universe. I've got some questions around that. So, um, because how how can we be one with someone, let alone God, but one with someone? in unity with someone, without being real and vulnerable. So I believe that's part of what he's asking for also, is, is to have this open capacity for an open heart with him. <clears throat> By real, I mean, if we were still trying to pretend we were somebody he thought he wanted us to be, but we weren't, how would that work? as far as having a real relationship. If we were trying to pretend to be somehow more than we really are. Does that make sense? It just wasn't, wouldn't work very well. Now, I tried that for a lot of years in my marriage. 
actually more in my courtship with Susan, but um, a little bit afterwards as well. I was trying to be what I thought was, um, you know, the perfect guy. And Susan kept on going, there's something that doesn't seem quite real about you. I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> when we got married, she got saw, saw more of the real rust, which wasn't all that pretty. But, um, but I'm just saying that sometimes we try and make ourselves, we try to pretend to be something we're not because we think that's what we need to have a relationship. But you can't have real relationship without being honest and real. This vulnerability, this vulnerability is part, this, I believe part of it is the, this glory that we're receiving in being vulnerable is part of what's enabling us to be one. And the other thing I believe is that how can we, we be one unless we have a similar nature, a similar glory, if you will, with the one that we're trying, we want to be one with. The Bible says that, that God made man in his image. It doesn't say that about anybody else, not about angels, not about giraffes. <laughs> made in his image. And I don't think it's because of our shape. I believe it's because we have a capacity for glory that's unlike, and a capacity for connection, a connection, a capacity for being vulnerable and real, for deep connection, deep intimacy. And that's been his plan all along, is for this forever relationship. And so Jesus says, I give them the glory, the glory that which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. So we are, we are being raised up to a kind, a level, a nature of glory where we can be in his presence. Remember that first story with Smith Wigglesworth? He had gotten to the point where he could be in a level of glory of God, the level of relationship that nobody else in the room could handle. How do you get that way? By beholding Jesus. <laughs> so we, that's open to all of us to go deeper, to go from glory to glory. And he's already provided for it. But what we, what we focus on, what we yearn for, what we desire, we make room for in our lives. And I, I want to encourage all of you to make room for God's glory and the glory he wants you to live in and walk in. There's um, a really, what I think is a wonderful 20-minute talk on TED. It's a website. I've been telling everybody I can about it. Uh, it's this woman who was, uh, now I think has her PhD in social work, a researcher, uh, gave it. I have no idea what her, her spirituality is, but she does mention that she had a spiritual awakening in the midst of this process. But she talks about the research that we were all made for connection. That's really what it's all about, is connection. Did you know that? Relationship, connection. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives, she, she says. And I believe that too. 
And she said, what we know from the research is that connection, the ability to feel connected, is neurobiologically, that's how we're wired. That's why we're here. And in her research, she also found out that there's something that absolutely unraveled connection. And she gave it a, a word. Can you guess what that word might be? Shame. Shame, she says, is easily understood as the fear of disconnection. Is there something about me that if other people know it or see it, that I won't be worthy of connection? What underpinned the shame is this, I'm not good enough. Which we all know, and we all know that feeling. I'm not thin enough, rich enough, beautiful enough, smart enough, promoted enough. The thing that underpinned this was excruciating vulnerability. The idea that in order for connection to happen, we have to allow it. But the, the truth is, in order to have, for connection to happen, we have to allow ourselves to be seen, really seen. So on the one hand, there's this shame and this excruciating vulnerability if I don't, if I don't feel like I'm enough. <clears throat> and on the other hand, the very capacity to be vulnerable and be real is what allows true connection. And she studied the two groups of people, the people who kind of were living from a whole heart and courage and people who weren't. And she said the basic difference between the people who, um, who felt like they were loved and belonged and the people who didn't was the ones who felt that they were, lo they were loved and belonged felt like they were worthy of that and the other people didn't. Does that make sense? Jesus came to earth to show us that we are so worthy of love and belonging that he would become a vulnerable man and die on the cross for us as proof of how worthy we are. So I just want you all to know, deep in your hearts, that that issue has been settled. You are worthy of love and belonging and what, Je what Jesus' life proves that to each of us. She said the people who could live out of a whole heart actually embraced vulnerability. They didn't talk about vulnerability being comfortable, nor did they talk about it being excruciating. As, as she had heard from the shame interview, they said vulnerability is ex excruciating. They just talked about vulnerability as necessary. They talked about the willingness to say, I love you first, the willingness to do something where there are no guarantees, the willingness to breathe through waiting for the doctor to call after your mammogram. They're willing to invest in a relationship that may or may not work out. They thought this was fun fundamental. And that's what God did for us, didn't he? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us first with no guarantee that we were going to love him back. He was willing to risk that. And as we become more and more like Jesus, we have more and more of that capacity. More and more of that kind of glory, if you will. The glory of, of, of risking for love. Risking for life.
So I invite you to close your eyes if you'd like. Nothing weird will be happening out here while you close your eyes. If you're willing, which I hope you are because you know how loving Jesus is, I invite you to to picture Jesus and look into his eyes. Receive the affection, the love, the joy, the excitement he has in relating with you. And just drink it in. And if you're, if you want it, if you desire it, you can say, Jesus, I want to be transformed from the glory I have now to the further glory you have for me. And if there's anything I've believed, any attitude I've taken, that's keeping me uh, stuck from becoming more real by embracing the life that you've given me. I ask you to show it to me, if you're willing. You can ask, show me anything that might be in the way of becoming more real, more solid, like in the great divorce. So I, I do, Jesus, I do want to go further and, and higher with you. I know you love me right where I am. And Jesus, I, I want the greater glory you have for me to walk in, becoming more real, more loving, able to shine more of your light to the world, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God which is in you, Jesus. created for connection and you're also created for dominion just let the Lord show you let Jesus um, continue to gaze back at you and let his light keep on flowing into you the light of his glory
if you're there with Jesus, I encourage you just to let things unfold. Uh, I'm, I'm done with my talk, but I want you to stay where you, where you are in, this, in your spirit. And uh, if you want to talk with folks and there's someone near you who's still engaged with Jesus, then move somewhere where it won't be a disturbance to them. Okay? You're welcome just to stay quiet with him as long as you want. I honor and bless all of you, my brothers and sisters. Thank you.